0: The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making an investment decision.
1: This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. Focusing on the big conversations will bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking investment insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape.
2: Foreign interference in this election, in the 2020 election is already underway. It's happening as we speak. The director of national intelligence, the senior most intelligence official in the United States put out a statement last week saying that the Russians, the Chinese and the Iranians are all playing in the election, in our democracy, to one degree or another. It's going to be a hot political issue here.
1: That's Michael Morell, former Deputy Director of the CIA. And as the US federal election draws even closer, the extraordinary events and influences at play, both in the US and globally, become the focus of our inaugural episode of In the Know. So welcome to the podcast. As all eyes look to the U.S. in the lead-up to its November federal election, Magellan's Chairman and Chief Investment Officer, Hamish Douglas, sat down with Michael Morell to hear his views on what's really going on so that we can all gain a better understanding of today's geopolitical realities. On the agenda, the U.S.-China relationship, risks around the upcoming U.S. election, and the impact of COVID-19 on national and global security.
0: I'd like to welcome everyone to the first Magellan podcast, Magellan in the Know. Today, I have the great privilege of speaking with a consultant of Magellan's and the former Deputy Director of the CIA, Michael Morell.
2: Thank you for inviting me, Hamish. It's great to be with you and congratulations on your first podcast. It's great.
0: I'd like to start, Michael, with a question on many people's mind. The U.S. government has recently targeted many Chinese interests. They've recently closed the Houston embassy. They've targeted Huawei, the telecommunications provider. And we've recently seen a ban of TikTok and WeChat owned by Tencent for doing business in the United States. Is this simply politics with the election coming up in November? Or is there something deeper or something more permanent with the relationship between China and the United States? So that's a great question, Hamish. I think it's both. Part of it is a
2: reflection of the United States trying to deter what we see as malign Chinese behavior, whether that's the theft of intellectual property, forced technology transfer, the provision of government subsidies to firms, the violation of international agreements like we saw in Hong Kong, the use of the military to solve territorial disputes rather than diplomacy, right? It's trying to deter all of those Chinese behavior. But part of it is clearly politics as well, the politics of the moment. China is really the only foreign policy issue that has any resonance in the 2020 campaign here. No other foreign policy issue matters, but China does because there's a good number of Americans who see China as taking their jobs away or the risk of taking their job away. And both sides, both the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign are trying to look strong vis-a-vis China, and they're trying to paint the other guy as weak. So I think it's a bit of both at this moment. But I think what it also means is that even if Vice President Biden were to win, you're still going to see a tougher U.S. approach to China than you saw, say, in the Obama administration?
0: It's quite easy to see the national security side of, say, Huawei and its technology being embedded in sort of the 5G technologies. And it, Australia, I think, came out first before the United States on Huawei. But closing an embassy in Houston, of course, all embassies are used for sin intelligence Work, but they didn't close the embassy in San Francisco or New York, but they closed an embassy in Houston. And TikTok doesn't seem to be at the front end of a national security issue, unlike Huawei. So, how do you kind of divide the sort of national security issues where there are some very genuine issues with something like closing an embassy that isn't a main embassy? Or am I misreading the sort of embassy situation that could have been national security because there could have been intelligence gathering going on? in that embassy only and not in any other Chinese embassy in America?
2: So I think it's, again, a bit of both. So it is national security. That's how we largely saw Huawei, and that's how we saw the embassy, the consulate in Houston, as really a place where Chinese intelligence officers did their work, at least some of their work from.
0: Isn't that what embassies are used for, partly? Sure, sure,
2: sure. And it was used to send a signal. I think San Francisco is actually the place where the Chinese probably do the most industrial espionage out of. We didn't close that one because we probably didn't want them to close a U.S. consulate important to us. So there was a bit of care not to overreact. But some of it is economics too, right? So I think in the last few years, the United States has come to see economics as part of national security and is important in its own right for the government to defend. So I think when you think about TikTok, and actually, you know, Huawei fits into both categories, both a national security issue and an economic issue. So I think we're now willing to play hardball on economics in a way that we really haven't before.
0: And I think that's new. And in terms of China's response to date, what do you think is driving China in being quite? It appears to be quite careful in how they're responding to the United States. What do you think is sort of driving their behaviour and why they're not being harder at setting lines here?
2: So I think Hamish that the Chinese know that being anti-China is good politics in America. Again, on both sides of the aisle, right? And I think they don't want to feed that. I think the Chinese government understands the power of nationalism and the need to manage it because it's such an important factor in their own politics. And I think they're trying to avoid saying things that feed a nationalistic response to China in the United States. So I think it's, it's probably well thought out and it's probably a good strategy for them to undertake at this moment.
0: So would you say, even though it appears that China's probably made some mistakes in terms of upping the ante to make it easier here, they're now going back into bide our time type strategy somewhat here?
2: Yes, I think they're waiting to see who wins in November, just like a lot of countries are. And I think the approach that they will take will depend on who wins. And I think they're just waiting to see. So that's another reason to hold back a little bit and not play too much of your hand at this point.
0: Which is interesting. Obviously, we've got the election coming up in November and Biden is well ahead in the polls, but these things can tighten up and then we can get overconfident around Biden. But how do you think Biden and his national security team and maybe Susan Rice, maybe even the Secretary of State here, how do you think they would handle the relationship? And do you think they would reset in some form from where the Trump administration has taken the relationship? So I think China
2: will be very high on a President Biden's priority list. I think that he will want his national security team early on, you know, in the first, I'd say, three, four months to put together a strategic approach to China that looks at what are our interests What are our allies' interests? What are China's interests in the world? Where are those interests in conflict? And where do they overlap? How do we take advantage of where they overlap? Where can we cooperate? And what do we do about those areas where they're in conflict? So I think you'll see an attempt on the Biden administration's part to put together a strategic policy that will, I think, be a lot tougher than Obama's was, but will probably take a different approach in terms of what policies you choose to pursue. So probably not tariffs, probably different approaches, probably less sharp rhetoric. And I think a big change will include taking into consideration the interests of and relying on significantly our allies and partners to help us manage this China thing. And I think there's an understanding that you can't prevent the rise of China right? by containing it. That's simply not possible. But how do you manage the competition so as not to damage what
0: is valuable to the both of us? I think that'll be the approach. So what you're saying is a more hawkish tone than Obama had, but probably a more predictable and more sort of diplomatic approach than what The Trump administration has taken for the world. Would you say that's a fair sort of summation? Yes,
2: but with an acknowledgement, right, that the Chinese need to stop doing certain things in the world. And I think, Hamish, that it's in our interest, too, all of our interests, right, for the United States and China to find things that they can work on together. And there's climate is a good example of that. Um, I think there's some things in the national security space, whether it's stability in certain parts of the world, you know, most importantly, the Middle East, it's more important to China than it is to us at the moment in terms of... of you so, North
0: Korea much- is a card that China could play somewhat here?
2: Yeah. In fact, our interests on North Korea actually overlap here. The Chinese are not happy that the North Koreans have nuclear weapons and are building long-range missiles. So it's another area where cooperation is possible. And the more cooperation you can have, the easier it
0: is to manage the competition. So I think it's important. And you could even see on trade, China making sure they're doing something that is compatible with the blue-collar worker side of the democratic side here as well, if they're smart.
2: Right. And if they don't feel like they're being pushed by tariffs, it's easier for them to do that.
0: Maybe we could move on to the U.S. election. You know, the last elections were controversial because of the foreign interference and particularly on social media. How concerned from a national security point of view are you worried about foreign interference in the election or possibly even more importantly post the election and what are the implications for the U.S.?
2: Yeah, another good question, Hamish. So foreign interference... And this election, in the 2020 election, is already underway. It's happening as we speak. The director of national intelligence, the senior most intelligence official in the United States, put out a statement last week saying that the Russians, the Chinese, and the Iranians are all playing in the election, in our democracy, to one degree or another. Foreign interference itself is going to continue to be a political issue here in the United States, whether it has any effect on the election or not. So it's just guaranteed because the Russians are involved and the Chinese are involved, it's going to be a hot political issue here, which is not good. To get to your question around the election and after the election, so there's two things that I worry about in particular, and both of them relate to the Russians right now the russians are playing less than they did in 2016. one reason is it's harder now the defenses are higher particularly on social media but the other is that they created a little bit of a brush fire in 2016 and that's continued to burn so they don't need to do as much to have that brush fire continue to burn maybe a little gasoline here a little gasoline there But what I fear is that as we get closer to the election, there's two things the Russians could do to really have a significant impact in a negative way. One is to break into voter registration lists and remove people's names. So when a voter shows up at the polls and says, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm Michael Morrell, and I'm here to vote, and the person says back, I'm sorry, you're not on our list right? We can't let you vote. So if you do that just in a number of places around the country, you don't even need to do it in large scale, you're going to get real chaos and you're going to get people accusing each other of election fraud. So
0: I worry a great deal about that. How secure are the systems to prevent that? Or are there just so many different systems where a good hacker could effectively get in and do that?
2: So we now know that the Russian intelligence service, GRU, tried to get in to the voting systems in all 50 states in 2016. So all 50 states. And because we have this state system and states' rights here are very important, and particularly when it comes to the management of elections, some states have not fully secured to the extent that they should. Some states have, some states have not. And so there's some vulnerabilities out there That the Russians could take advantage of. So I worry about that piece. And then the other piece I worry about, Hamish, is I think there's going to be a lot of turmoil in the immediate aftermath of the election caused by our own politics here. And I think there's a risk that that's when you might see the Russians play significantly in social media claiming there was fraud, blaming one side or the other. In other words, amplifying the degree of outrage in the country over how the election went. So I worry about both of those things. And both of them could have a significant impact. It could bring people out in the streets and protest.
0: Do you think that really depends upon how close the result is? If it's very close, the temperature goes up enormously? On Yes, absolutely. If it's, you know, landslide, then obviously not. And at this point in time, who do you think will win and why? And sort of what are you looking for through the next three months in terms of things that could change?
2: So as you know, Hamish, Biden is way ahead in the polls at the moment. And if the election were held today, and if the results reflected the polls, he would win In both a popular vote landslide and an electoral college landslide. But the election is not today. It's three months from now. And the polls will change. They will most likely narrow. It's happened in almost every election we've had. So they'll narrow between now and the election. And importantly, I think there's a bit of a wild card this time. There's a great deal of uncertainty about whether the results will reflect the polls. Because we just don't know how turnout is going to be affected by COVID. So that's a new variable here that we haven't had to deal with before. So because you don't know the turnout, it's really hard to say whether the polls are reflecting reality or not. But Hamish, if you forced me to place a bet today, I'd put it on Biden in a popular vote landslide, but in a much closer electoral college margin.
0: One thing that a lot of people outside of the United States don't understand is exactly how the system works. If you win the White House, you don't actually have a lot of power unless you win the the Congress and you win the Senate. And in Australia, you would think that if you win the Senate and the Congress, you can do what you like. But... In America, outside of sort of budgetary moves in the Senate, you need to get to sort of two-thirds majority in the Senate, which is impossible because of a Senate rule called the filibuster, where legislation can be permanently held up without a sort of two-thirds supermajority vote. But they could change that rule, and it appears that Obama, in a recent speech, sort of toyed with the idea that they should get rid of the filibuster if they win Senate and the White House and Congress – and as a carrot to sort of democratic side, they should make two extra states, Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico, which are districts at the moment, states in the United States. And every state, no matter how many people in the Senate rules, gets two senators. And they, right. they could all turn out to be democratic states. You know, what chance do you think that if they got control of the Senate and Congress and the White House, if it's a sort of a landslide, that they would go the further step and take total control of the situation and do something like this.
2: I think from the Democrats' perspective, there will be a strong argument for getting rid of it. And that argument is that the only way to get things done that the voters want, who voted Biden in as president, is to get rid of the filibuster. So that'll be the argument for but there'll also be a very strong argument against, right? And that argument is we're not gonna be in the majority forever. At some point, we will be back in the minority. And do we want the Republicans at that point to be able to operate without the filibuster? So I think the debate will turn to some degree on the size of Biden's win. So the larger the win, the greater the likelihood of the filibuster going away. But, you know, at the end of the day, Hamish, if you ask me to predict, I'd say that tradition and the fear of retribution will probably win out and the filibuster will stay around. People know that the long term is really long, and I think there's going to be real caution to throw away something that's been such a long part of American history and that you really, really don't want used against you someday.
0: Yeah. And I guess the Democrats have a bit of a bloody nose. They changed the rules on executive appointments to remove the filibuster and then Trump got in and made all these appointments. And I think the Democrats are going, that wasn't such a good idea. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe just quickly talking on COVID on two different angles here. Do you think COVID is going to result in any sort of national security or geopolitical implications around the world through weakened economies or weakened states here that could lead to sort of national security issues? And on the other side of this, probably national security, you know, biological weapons has been a topic for a long time for terrorism. And do you think a deliberate spread of a virus is sort of more tempting to terrorists now? They've seen what havoc it can do to the world if a virus spreads into a pandemic.
2: So on COVID first, I would say that it is already having national security implications. Let me just mention three. One is that it's already accelerating, in my view, the deterioration of the US-China relationship. So the blame game that the U.S. played and then the work of the Chinese to work this to their advantage around the world diplomatically and, quite frankly, using some covert influence operations to send messages blaming the United States, you know, has already further undermined the relationship. So that's not good. Pushing us further in the direction of that Cold War that people are increasingly talking about. So that's one. Two is, I think it's already creating political instability in a number of countries around the world, undermining political stability because citizens are frustrated with their governments for not handling the virus better and for not handling the economic fallout better. So I think there are already some politicians in trouble in some places. In some of those places, that will play out at the polls. In a natural process, but in some places it's gonna play out in the streets and it could get violent. So I think political stability is in a number of places is being put at risk. And then and I I guess it may
0: well have changed the outcome of the election in the United States, COVID. Yes, because when we were talking
2: in February, it looked like Donald Trump, thanks to the strength of the economy, was gonna win again. And what's the thing behind the swing was his handling of COVID. It's less what's happened to the economy because people see that as the fault of COVID, but people believe that he has significantly mishandled the pandemic and that's why there was the swing to Biden. So absolutely, that's the best example of this political instability thing I'm talking about. And then the third is, I think it's accelerating in some places in the world, it's accelerating this trend toward authoritarianism, which was in place before COVID and is now getting reinforced because strong men and people who want to be like them are making an argument that they need more executive power in order to handle the virus and to handle the economic effects. And in a number of countries, their citizens are giving them that power. And when we emerge from this pandemic, they're not going to give it back. So I think it's already affecting geopolitics and national security. On the terrorist question, they have long been interested in weapons of mass destruction. So chemical weapons, biological weapons, even nuclear weapons. Will COVID increase that interest? Sure, because they're going to be reminded of the potential damage that such weapons can do. But having said that, turning that interest into reality has never been easy. It's not easy and it's not going to really get any easier. So we need to worry about it. We need to collect intelligence on it. We need to work with our allies on that. We need to prepare for it. But I don't think we should go to sleep at night worried about it.
0: Well, that's relieving. I guess a man-made biological weapon is super, super hard. Um, Yes. Even the best scientists in the world, let alone some terrorists trying to do that. Yes. And therefore, it's probably trying to spread a naturally occurring virus by fanatics infecting themselves and trying to move around society is probably the kind of risk, is it, rather than sort of a biological, true developed weapon.
2: Yeah, you know, right after 9-11, when we got into Afghanistan, we found out that Al-Qaeda was experimenting with anthrax. So they had some chemical poisons they were experimenting with, but they were also experimenting with anthrax, which is not spread from person to person, but can kill a large number of people if it's refined properly. So I think if terrorists really look hard at biological weapons they're likely to look at things that don't spread person to person because obviously they don't want to get it right they don't want to die from it so it's going to be something more like anthrax that can't spread so, so it's very very have difficult to, be more
0: to spread fearful of a naturally occurring pandemic than a terrorist related pandemic spread
2: yeah you know it's interesting i had dr anthony fauci who's become quite a folk hero here in the united states on my podcast Two and He's and a half become years a bike
0: hero in Australia as well.
2: Like. <laughs> That's great. Uh, he should be a hero. But I asked the question about terrorists and bioweapons and the creation of a virus. And, and he very quickly downplayed that and very quickly pointed out that the risk of a naturally occurring virus
0: was much, much higher. Michael, maybe we can just change topics a bit around cyber. You know, there's been a lot of noise around cyber in Australia in the last week or so where they're rolling out their sort of national response cyber policy around critical infrastructure and important businesses and so forth and getting the country sort of better prepared. Who are the sort of players and what would they wanting to be achieving from an attack that would be taking down or attacking certain infrastructure, whether it's stock exchanges or critical infrastructure like electricity networks, or even the voter side of things, you know, taking down that sort of infrastructure. So
2: major nation states, to include the United States, the United Kingdom, so our closest allies, and our most significant adversaries, Russia and China, have the tools to be able to take down critical infrastructure. But not many people, if any, beyond major nation states have that capability at the moment. So at the moment, it's only the big nation states. And because of that, I don't think it's likely that we're going to see a major attack, a major cyber attack on critical infrastructure absent a hot war. So if we got into a hot war, say, over the Baltics with Russia, or if we got into a hot war with China over Taiwan, then absolutely the Russians and Chinese would try to shut down critical infrastructure in the United States. And quite frankly, we would do the same there. We'd probably focus on different targets, but we would do the same there. But outside of a hot war, I don't see either side, either the Russians or Chinese doing that because they know that we would respond in kind. So it's the equivalent of mutually assured destruction in the nuclear world. What we have to worry about, I think, Hamish, is as smaller nation states, including some rogue states, develop their cyber capabilities, if Iran a, a or a North Korea or a terrorist group right, develop these capabilities, then there's a greater risk of them using it because the mutually assured destruction is harder. So right now, it's not something we have to worry about, but it's something we have to watch in terms of smaller nation states developing their capabilities in this area.
0: But is it still a bit like the nuclear threat that even if these rogue nations get a nuclear capability, it's still mutually assured destruction? That How well can they really cover their tracks of plausible deniability if it was Iran or North Korea, if they took down the electricity grid? And if the US saw it, wouldn't they just respond tenfold in response to something like that?
2: Yeah, I don't know, though, to the degree to which we can count on their understanding of what you just said. Whereas with the Russians and with the Chinese, there's a long history of understanding this concept. And I just worry a little bit about the Iranians and North Koreans understanding that. So they might, but then you throw terrorist groups into that mix and this becomes a weapon of mass destruction right for a terrorist group. And there is no doubt in my mind that a terrorist group, if they got their hands on a weapon of mass destruction, including a cyber tool to take down critical infrastructure, they would use it.
0: Oh, well, that's a sobering. But you're saying they're a way off that capability. That there's always a risk. Yes, yes. Well, maybe we can turn to a more optimistic thing. I asked you back in February March, you know, what most optimistic about sort of now, and and maybe your views haven't changed about what you're optimistic about the future but it's not all doom and gloom I imagine in your mind Michael with what's going on in the world and it's easy to get caught in the moment as opposed to the picture here.
2: You know I think Hamish when you asked me this in Australia I said something like the time I spend on college campuses and the passion and talent of those kids and then the time I spend in Silicon Valley and how impressed I am with the innovation and creativity and entrepreneurship. And both of those are still true. But maybe I would add to that list now and say that history has always, over the long term, moved forward. You know, there's certainly been dark periods. There's certainly been periods of time when we have moved backwards. But at the end of the day, we always emerge in the light. And as bad as things look today, particularly in my country, particularly with regard to the politics here, there is a very good chance that a number of years from now, we're going to be in a much better place because because humanity has sort of always moved forward. There's always been that
0: forward movement ever since the Enlightenment. And Michael, I would agree with you. If you look in the last 250 years since the English arrived in Australia, or really since the independence in America, it's not that long a time in history, but if you look what's happened in the world over that period of time, or what humanity has done, we've had world wars, we've had pandemics, we've had nuclear destruction, threats, you go back, we had slavery, women couldn't vote, gay people couldn't marry, all these things have been achieved, and society is so much better off, but at points in time in the last 250 years, it looked terrible, At many points in time, but look in such a short time of history, what's happened in the progress to humanity in the world and how much better people are living and how much longer people are living. So I'm long-term optimistic on humanity to keep improving the future, including things like climate change. But when you get caught in the moment, you know, in a pandemic and we've got issues, but we're not in the middle of a world war. Right, Right. I think people in 1943 would have felt a lot worse off than we feel today.
2: Yes. And I agree 100% with what you said. Um, the thing is, though, you can't let that long-term optimism stop you from trying to tackle some of the problems that we face today. And I think that's whether it's climate or it's other issues, right? You can't just know the future is going to be better. We have to actually make it better, work to make it better.
0: Yeah. And I completely agree with that. But I have some faith in humanity's desire and willingness to fix things, even though it appears it's not because there's enough people on the planet who want to do it, enough technologies being advanced that you can't ever extrapolate in a simple linear line. So if we keep going on the path we're going, we're going to destroy the planet. I believe what we do is we tack and we will change and we've got enough people who want to change that will cause it to happen over time. It just doesn't happen rapidly enough and you just don't see the forces of change happening because you see the forces against change getting amplified so much in the short term. Yeah.
2: I mean, you'll remember, Hamish, in the 1970s, people said, we're going to run out of oil, right? And they were absolutely certain that we were going to run out of oil. But technology came and now we're awash in it. So, yeah, absolutely, things do not stay the same.
0: Yeah, and I'm very optimistic. Ultimately, we're all talking about wind and solar, but I think hydrogen is going to be the revolution, potentially. And in 20 years from time, I think we'll be going, why aren't we all talking about hydrogen? (laughs) 20 years ago. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Especially when you get into green hydrogen, but that's another topic. You've had such a long career at the very top of the CIA and particularly leading the analytical force at the CIA. What's the best advice you can give to investors in dealing with risks and uncertainty? How should they be thinking about uncertainty in their frameworks? It's a great question. There's a
2: risk in the vast majority of things that people do every day and the decisions that they make every day, from driving your car to investing. So what I think the most important thing to understand is exactly what are the risks and what do I need to do to mitigate them? So in driving your car, it might be buying a car with all these fancy safety features, or it might simply be driving the speed limit instead of speeding. In the case of investing, it might be balancing your portfolio among the assets you hold, not buying things that move in the same direction together, right? And so I think it's understanding the risks and then mitigating. And I think the other thing I would say, and this is true of intelligence operations, just as it's true of investing, there is no reward without risk. Risk and reward are closely tied together. If we didn't take significant risks as intelligence officers, we wouldn't have collected the information that we needed to protect the country from Al-Qaeda after 9-11. And we took significant risks. And if you don't take risks as an investor, you're not going to get a return. So I think it's also important to understand that.
0: Well, Michael, as always, incredible to be speaking with you. And thank you for all your ongoing advice and support You're welcome, Hamish. Good to be with you and great luck
2: with the podcast. Thank you very much.
1: That was former Deputy Director of the CIA, Michael Morell, speaking with our Chairman and Chief Investment Officer, Hamish Douglas. Michael hosts his own weekly podcast, Intelligence Matters, in which he speaks to top leaders of the U.S. intelligence community as they reflect on their life, career and the critical roles they play in shaping national security policies. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us for the next episode in a month's time. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular investment insights program. Thanks for listening.